turn your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. We come this morning to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. As you flip there and you look where we are, you'll notice that while I say it's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we are only on verse 12 of chapter 7, and it goes all the way to verse 28. Actually, the sermon goes to verse 27. So that settles it. Jesus was a Baptist preacher. His conclusion has five parts. We will begin wrapping those up this week. We come to Matthew chapter 7, verses 12. Our text this morning is 12 through 14. And it is where Jesus begins concluding his sermon. And, and he does so by, in verse 12, giving a summary statement of what he's preached on in verses 5, 17, all the way down to 7, 11. And then beginning in verse 13, on through verse 27, he's going to give us four concluding warnings Four warnings that demand that we respond to what he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the first warning that you'll see, if you just want to kind of skim along with me in chapter 7, is verse 13 and 14. What we'll look at today is beware of going the wrong way. In verses 15 to 20, he will warn us, beware of false teachers. In verses 21 to 23, he will then warn us of, to beware of a false salvation. In verses 24 to 27, he will finally warn us and conclude the sermon by saying, beware of the wrong foundation. So today we turn our attention to what is commonly referred to as the, the golden rule, and then we'll look at the first of his concluding warnings where he is warning us to beware of going the wrong way. But let's read the text together first, beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. The word of God says this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What I want to do is... Look at verse 12 first and talk about the golden rule and, and see what that means and why that is such an important summary statement for us as the people of God. And then we will go on into verse 13 and 14 and look at the first of Jesus' warning. So if you look at verse 12, it begins by, by so, and this word can be so, or it can be translated as therefore, and it points us back to what had preceded. And when you start looking at what does it refer back to, you, you have to keep backing up, keep backing up, because it, it does not just refer to the previous few verses. In fact, it refers all the way back to chapter 5, verse 17. If you just flip, up, flip over in your Bible to 517, you read there, this is the, the portion where he begins speaking on the law. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's referring back to that. How we know that is what's called an inclusio. It's a, a literary device. It's kind of like literary bookends that give you the beginning and the end of a section. And Jesus uses this here. If you look in, in 712, he makes reference to the law and the prophets. And then when you skip back to 517, he has said, what? The law and the prophets. So you have these two bookends 
where Jesus makes that reference and that statement, the law and the prophets. So we understand that he is looking and he is summarizing all that he said all the way back to 517. So 517 to 48, Jesus is talking about what does it look like to live out the law as we're called to do? What does it look like to live out the law in a way that's not just a legalistic approach, a religious approach to just checking off the box and just obeying a list of rules, right? But instead, it's looking at the law and what is the heart intent of the law and how does that examine my heart? How do I live out the law in a way that honors the Lord? In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, he then talks about how do we live out religion? How do we live the pious life, the religious life in a way that honors the Lord and exalts him and is not just seeking the the privilege or the, the applause of man, but instead we are seeking the greater glory of our Lord? And then 19, 619, up through 711 are passages that we've looked at in the last few weeks. He talks about how do we live in the world without treasuring the world? How do we live in the world without it taking hold of our hearts and gripping our hearts in such a way that we exalt the world and and are tied to the world without pursuing and following Christ? And so he comes to the end of this section, a lengthy section, with a very succinct, a very clear summary statement. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. When you think about living out your Christian life, when you think about living in pursuit of Christ and following Christ, do whatever you wish that others would do to you. Do unto them. That is a summary statement from our Lord. Now, we need to take just a moment and recognize that there are skeptics and atheists in our day who would look at this passage and say, you know what? That's crazy. It's crazy because that's not even original to Jesus. So the skeptic and the atheist may look at that and say, you know what? That's not original to Jesus. So, so you can't even trust that. You can't trust Christianity. He's just stealing from other philosophers, other religions. Well, why do they ask, say that? Well, because there is a similar teaching found in the writings of Philo, Confucius, the Stoics, and Jewish rabbis before Christ. This is not the first time that, that a, state, a statement similar to this has been made. And so the question is, is, is that cause for us to doubt Christ? Should we gather this morning and go, well, something similar was said before? I want you to hear a few of the statements that were said. In the 7th century BC, an Egyptian papyrus says this, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Confucius wrote, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And the 5th century Greek philosopher Isocrates said, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. All very similar statements, similar teachings, similar ethical standards. And so the skeptic among us might look and say, you shouldn't trust Jesus. He's claiming this, but it's not original to him. I I would put forth two answers to the skeptic among us. If that's you, that you would say, I don't believe we should trust Jesus because of that reason, I want to put forth two answers. One, the presence of similar teachings in other religions and historical writings does not damage the truthfulness of what Christ said or the integrity of Christ. Jesus. It it doesn't damage it in any way whatsoever. We should rightly expect 
basic ethical standards to be shared across the world in history because of two reasons. God is real and absolute truth is real. So we would expect ethical teachings and ethical standards to be around the world, around the globe. We would expect that. It's just like we don't go, oh, well, God said in the Bible, do not murder. And there's other cultures that also have a prohibition against murder. So that means that it's not original to the Bible. We shouldn't trust it. No, we don't say that. We don't say that because we expect that there is morality, there is ethical standards, ethical truth, absolute truth that is common to man because truth is real. It is not relative. It is not, it is not determined by a cultural majority that gets together and says, hey, this is how our culture wants to shape it and this is the truth that we want to put forth and there you go. No, absolute truth does indeed exist. And because absolute truth exists, because God does indeed exist, then we do see these teachings elsewhere. We do see the foundation of the ethical standard and the truth of our God. And I might add that Jesus' ministry is not established upon novelty. It's established on truth. Jesus isn't seeking to just be novel. He's seeking to declare the truth. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. And that each of these instances, the teaching is indeed similar. But while it is very similar, there is an important difference. You see, the the teachings that are written in other religions, other philosophies, are negative. Christ's teaching is positive. The other, other religions, other teachings say, do not do what you don't want done to you, right? Don't do that. Resist doing that thing. If you see something, you say, well, I I don't want Mark to do that to me, so I'm not going to do that to him. Right? It's a, it's a negative approach. Whereas Christ says, do what you would want others to do to you. It's a positive approach. Earlier Jewish teachings said the same thing. The earlier Jewish teachings had the same negative instruction. And Christ comes and he gives a positive instruction. A positive fulfillment. A positive um, uh, posture, you might say, to this command, this teaching. Jesus fulfilled and deepened our understanding. Just as he did in in the law in 5, verse 17 to 48, he gives us a greater understanding, a greater fulfillment of what it means and a greater understanding of the purpose of the law. He does the same here. It is not just that we resist doing bad, but it is that we step into doing what is loving, what is good. So Christ's teaching is that that we don't merely resist doing what we should not do, but we take that extra step and do what we would want done to you. Here's an easy way to think about it, to kind of put some flesh on it. If I'm driving home today and I I see a homeless man, I can choose not to hit him, right? And I can veer over in the other lane and go on my way, and I haven't done anything bad to him. I can choose not to roll my window down and malign him or to ridicule him. I can choose not to hurt him in a multitude of ways. And go about my day. But in so doing, I have done nothing for him, right? All I've done is resisted doing something bad to him. Jesus does not say, just don't do anything bad to him. Go on about your day. Avoid doing something wrong. Jesus says, no, I want you to do unto that man what you would have him do unto you if you were in his position. And so instead, we would come and we would look and go, you know, this is how I would want to be treated if I was that man. How can I come alongside this man and help him and love him and 
care for him. I step into that instance. I don't just avoid doing what is wrong. I don't just avoid doing what is sinful. I don't just avoid doing what is evil. But instead, I step into that and I act in a loving way, in a gracious way. I work for his good. I'm benevolent to him and I help him. There's a difference there. So there's no reason that we would look at this verse and go, well, that should cause us to doubt or question the integrity or the truthfulness of our Lord's teaching. Now, when we come to this verse in verse 12, there is an emphatic you here. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It literally can be translated that way. You too do so for them the same way you would have them to do to you. Listen, this, this command may be a command that not everyone on the planet follows. It's certainly one that we would say not everyone follows. But it is a command that is non-negotiable for the follower of Christ. It should be part of the DNA of being in the kingdom of God. It is just who we are, that we act in a loving, benevolent way to those around us. We have that positive teaching from him. Do also to them. There's a proactive teaching to love a proactive teaching to step in and to do good. It is proactive teaching to help those who are hurting. It's not just to say, don't tear others down. Don't verbally assault others. Don't gossip about them. But instead, we are to step in to ver- and to verbally build them up, encourage them, edify them, strengthen them, provide grace for the moment through our words. It's a command that we step into loving the way Christ has loved us. Now, why would we do this? Why would we do this? What does Jesus say? Look at your text. He doesn't just say, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And in there, he gives us the reason. Why would we do that? The reason is for this is the law and the prophets. This expresses the law and the prophets. This expresses the heart of them. We fulfill the law and the prophets in that way. You'll remember Matthew 22, 37 to 40, a text that you hear often. It's a text where the lawyer comes and he tries to trick Jesus and he asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And he's trying to get Jesus to pick one and go, well, this is more important than that one. And oh, you're saying that word of the Lord is not important, but this one is. Oh, I got you, right? He's trying to trick him. And Jesus' answer is what? One that you know well. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets hinge on these commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Those of you who are involved in the engagement project, this should sound familiar to you, that, that we're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love those who are near, those who are around us, those we come in contact with. We are called to love them. The royal law he talks about in the engagement project. And that's based in Romans 13, 8 to 10, where Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How do you fulfill the law? By loving one another. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Then we read in Galatians 5.14, where Paul says it again. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is that one word? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
In James 2.8, James writes, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. To, to love our neighbor fulfills the law. Why should we treat others as we would have them treat us? Because it is how we show love to them. It is how we show love to them. It is not just resisting to act in a way that is sinful towards them. It's not just avoiding evil actions towards them or evil words. No, it's stepping in to their lives and showing love to them. Now, I would, I would just point out one final observation on this verse. There are no conditions to this. It, it does not say, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them if you agree with them. It doesn't say, do also to them if, if you like them. It, it doesn't say, do also to them if they treat you well. It doesn't say, do it only if they don't gossip about you, if you get along with them, if you stand where they stand, if you like the things they like, if they don't say anything bad about your family. No, it simply says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We love without condition. As a follower of Christ, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, if you gather here this morning and you say, I follow Christ, I am a Christian, this should be a characteristic of your life that you live loving those around you. The question is, is it? Is it? We come to verse 13. Verse 13 to 14, as I said, is the first warning of Christ. The warning is to enter by the narrow gate. So by saying enter the narrow gate, giving a very clear command, he starts with an imperative here, right? Enter by the narrow gate. And by saying that, he is warning. What is the warning? There's another gate. There's another way. There is another possibility. And you need to avoid it. Instead of going that way, you need to enter the narrow gate. And Jesus contrasts two ways here. Look at the, the contrast of the ways. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And here's the contrast. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. So... The wide gate, what is the description of the wide gate? It's, it's easy, it leads to destruction, and many go through the wide gate. But he contrasts that with the narrow gate. He says the, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What's the description of the narrow gate? The, the narrow gate is hard. It leads to life. And few find it. Few enter into it. I hope, you, I hope you noticed. I hope you noticed as we sang. And we began our time of worship by, by looking to the Lord and beholding the wonderful mystery of our God. That He would make known salvation through Christ. That He would make known that it is through Christ alone we're saved. And then we, we sang and we worshiped and we said, Jesus paid it all. I didn't pay anything. There's nothing that I contributed to my salvation. But Jesus paid every bit of it. And then we turn and we say nothing but the blood. There's nothing else. There, there are no deeds. There are no philosophies. There are no worldviews that can save me. Only the blood of Christ can save me. Then we just finish by saying you alone can rescue. There's no one else that can rescue me. There's no one else that can save me. Christ is the way. 
Christ is the one who saves. He is the narrow gate. There is no third option. There's no third option. If you look here, Jesus is very clear. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. There's a wide way, a narrow way. There's one way that's hard. There's one way that's easy. There's one way that leads to destruction. There's one that leads to life. There's one that many follow. There's one that few follow. There is no third option. You don't find a middle ground here. 1 John 5, 11, and 12, same thing. Jesus says, or, or John says, if you have the Son, talking about Jesus, if you have the Son, you have life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There's no middle ground. You either are saved or you're not. You either follow Christ or you don't. You're either going the wide way, the path of destruction, or you're going the narrow way, the path of life. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. It's the same thing. We, we turn and we start, if you flip back to Psalm 1, you don't have to turn back there, but when we start the book of Psalms, the psalmist teaches and starts us in the same place. It's a contrast of two ways, the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. He says, blessed is the man who does not seek or does not walk in the counsel of the wicked but, or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He describes that man. He comes down to the end of Psalm 1, and he says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. There's two ways. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. The way uh, that is narrow, that is hard, that leads to life, that few find. The way that is wide, that is easy, that many find and leads to destruction. Which way, which path, which gate are you walking through? Let's think about the wide gate for a moment. The, the wide gate described by Christ here is the way that is common, that many travel. It's the way that's easy, and it's easy because it just goes with the flow. It, it goes with the cultural tide. It goes with the narrative. It meets no resistance. But you need to hear this morning that if that is where you are and you're going with the tide, you're going with the flow, you're meeting no resistance with our culture, and that is a path that leads to destruction, it does not mean you are going the right way. I can jump in the Cumberland River and I can float with the flow all day long. And I am going to be in trouble if no one warns me and said the falls are coming upon you. Going with the flow can give us a great, or present us with a great problem. And he says here, the wide gate is easy, it leads to destruction, and those who enter it are what? Are many. Now, this is an important contrast. The many versus the few. The many versus the few. I, I'm reminded, we, we think about the many and the few, that that. The majority may choose this way, but we have to remember that the majority is not always right. The majority just kind of goes with the narrative. They, they go with what's in. They go with what's popular. It's what we, we read in the pastoral prayer, the triumphal entry. It's a beautiful picture of the majority between the triumphal entry. When, when Christ comes into Jerusalem, we see the, the majority doing what? They're praising the name of the Lord. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a few days later, the majority is what? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So what do you do? If you go with the majority, where are you landing? Where are you going to be? 
If you go with the majority in our day, where are you going to be? And the majority in here, if you say, hey, I'm going to go with the majority right now and I'm going to sing nothing but the blood. But then you leave and you go about your week and the majority doesn't say nothing but the blood. The, the majority is saying everything but the blood. It's radically different. So if you just live your life according to the majority, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. Heap of trouble. I, I think there, I, I thought this week of, of six different wide gates that we have in our day. Six different wide gates. Wide gates that, that people are running through, that the majority is rushing through. Ways that are easy and ways that lead to destruction. Here's the first one. The first one is very relevant to our area. It would be Bible Belt religion, Bible Belt religiosity, morality. Those who would say, hey, just go to church. Just go to church. As long as you go to church, get on your, your suit, and look nice, and say the right things, and you go to Sunday school, and you check off the box, and maybe you even tithe if you're really radical, then you'll be fine. Just go to church. They're depending on religiosity to save them. And religiosity does not save you. Religiosity does not save you. Who did Jesus confront the most? He confronted the Pharisees, those steeped in religion. Bible Belt morality is a wide gate. The second wide gate of our day. This idea of self-fulfillment or self-actualization, self-image, self-help. This independence that I'm a self-made man, this focus on self. That's a wide gate that if I just focus on myself and I have a positive self-image and, and I get to that point where someone would look at you and say, you are self-actualized. Oh, I've made it. I've made it. I'm self-actualized. I'm a self-made man. That is a, that is a lie from the pit of hell that leads to destruction, but it is one that people are running after and hoping to fulfill and resting in. A third wide gate. A third wide gate would be the wide gate of social justice. The causes, the philanthropy, the doing good things for people. That we would be about this cause and we'd be about intervening in this area and fighting for this and fighting for that and fighting for this. And we kind of check that off on our, on our chest. We get the pin and we have these little pins all over our, our kind of make-believe, pretend vest that we're wearing. And they're all causes, they're all social justice movements that we applaud ourselves for. The problem is so many of those are void of the gospel. They're void of teaching and proclaiming Christ. They're void to causing people and appealing for people to look to Christ. And instead they're causing them to look to this, look to this money, look to this person, look to this organization instead of looking to Christ. Social justice does not fall in the narrow way. Fourth, Fourth would be the successful life through wealth and education. That I just want to be successful. That parents are focused and everything their focus is on is on raising kids who are successful. And they're more successful than me and they're making more money than I am. They've got this award and that award and that diploma and this diploma. And they've got this house and these toys and all of these things. And I'm focused on that. And I'm, I'm growing my little empire. That I can accumulate wealth, that I can accumulate success, that I can have the greatest education. And when that is what you rely on, it is a wide gate. It's a wide gate that leads to destruction. Fifth would be cultural conformity, flag waving. Whatever the, the narrative of the culture is, we just get in with that narrative. 
We don't examine what that's teaching. We don't examine that according to Scripture. We just jump into this cultural conformity and say, hey, I'm going to wave that flag, and I'm going to put that as my profile picture, and I'm going to declare that, and I'm going to retweet that. I'm going to repost that. I'm going to be about that. I'm going to buy that T-shirt. I'm going to stand where they stand because it makes me feel good. It's a cultural narrative. Everybody's saying it. Everybody's saying it. It must be true. It must be right. The many are following it. The wide gate that leads to destruction. And the sixth, we can't fail to see or forget the many false religions in our day. Many false religions. Spirituality. New age spirituality. That would lead men to look to false gods. False ideas. False philosophies. False worldviews. That it's okay to be spiritual and faithful. Just to be full of faith. And that's it. Without ever questioning, is your spirituality grounded in Christ? Is your faith rooted in Christ? It leads to destruction. All of these are wide gates that many run through. And, and I want you to notice something that not, well really, none of them are necessarily bad in themselves. I would never say you shouldn't go to church. I would never say you shouldn't be a person of good morals. I would never say you need to think bad of yourself and just beat yourself up all day. I would never say that we should never be involved in social causes, that we shouldn't seek to, to, to stand for justice and to promote truth. I would never say that we don't want to be successful. I would never say that you should not be educated, that you should not pursue education. Actually, I can't say anything about the fifth and sixth ones being good. <laughs> Trying. Can't find them. But those first four, there's nothing wrong or evil in themselves. But when we depend just on those things, void of Christ, void of the gospel, it's the wide gate that leads to destruction. Do not be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't let those things grip your life and fool you into being comfortable and walking through the wide gate. Now, Jesus contrasts this with the narrow gate. He contrasts it with the narrow gate, the gate that is hard and few find it. Few find it. Few choose it. Few enter through it. J.C. Ryle, I love reading J.C. Ryle. He says this. He says, surely it is better to enter into eternal life with a few than to go to destruction with a great company. What would you prefer? Would you prefer to enter into eternal life with a few, or would you rather just go headlong into destruction with this great company, a great multitude, the many that you all run headlong into destruction? What would you prefer? What would you prefer? The narrow gate is only entered through Christ. It's only entered through Christ, nothing but the blood. He alone can save. Jesus paid it all, and this is a wondrous mystery to behold. It is a wondrous mystery that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's in Christ. There are vital words in that verse. In John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Here we come to John 10, 9, and Jesus talking about this passage where he identifies himself as the good shepherd. And he re- we read in verse 9, he says, I am the door. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's no other option. There's no other choice. It's Christ. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the narrow way. John 14, 6, what does Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except what? Except through me. In Acts 4.12, what do we read? Great sermon. He comes talking about Christ and he says there is salvation in no one else. No one else. There there is no other name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through who? Through who? Through cultural conformity? Through social justice? Through another religion? Through another philosophy? Through education? Through wealth? Through being a good Jew? Surely Paul said through being a good Jew. I mean, he was a great Jew. Surely Paul said, hey, we're justified by being zealous Jews. No, no. Paul says we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, no one else, no one else. It's through Christ and Christ alone. In the verse we talked about a few minutes ago, I mentioned to you, 1 John 5, 11, and 12. What does he say there? He draws a very clear line in the sand. He says, this is the testimony. This is the testimony. This is what I put before you. This is what I declare to you, that God gave us eternal life. He gave us eternal life. Now, how did he give it to us? How did he give it to us? Philanthropy? From Being a good Bible Belt Christian? Showing up to church? Being in Sunday school? Waving the right flag? Defending the right cause? No. No. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Doesn't have life. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And that is why it's hard. That's why it's hard, because it goes against the flow of the majority. It goes against our own sinful nature. I can't look within and say, you know what? I want to save myself. I'm going to look at my deeds. I'm going to look at my my morality. I'm going to look at my education, what I know. I'm going to look at my abilities. I'm going to look at what I have. That doesn't save me. It's through Christ and Christ alone. I can't look within. I can't trust the majority. I can't just run with the majority. I must turn from my sin. And trust in Christ. I must look to Him. And friend, when you do that, it is not popular. And it does not guarantee an easy life. I think one of the great lies of our day is that if you just trust in Jesus, everyone's going to like you. Life's going to be easy. You just come on down. You know what? That's not really what I read Jesus saying. I, I would say if that's you and you say, hey, it's just all, it's going to be easy, it's going to be easy, smooth life, then I would say, good, go read the New Testament and show me where that easy, smooth life is. A true follower of Christ will encounter trials. They will encounter difficulties. And we know that Jack Baker stands here and he goes through the baptism waters. Or any of you who have done the same. It's not a testimony. We stand up here and say, you know what? Life's easy now for Jack. Everybody at school is going to love him. 
hey, it's going to go smooth. I mean, down the road when he's a professional, it's going to be easy. I mean, look, all of you people out here who are businessmen, surely you can tell him how easy it is to be a Christian businessman. Surely you can tell him how easy it is to be a teacher who stands for Christ in our day. Surely you can tell him how easy it is to walk down the halls of a hospital as a nurse or to do surgery or to make decisions as a doctor, how easy it is to be a Christian. Surely you can tell him how easy it's going to be to be working in the construction industry and glorify Christ, to testify to Christ. Oh, that's easy. I mean, surely you can tell him how easy it is to do plumbing and electrical. You say, hey, I'm a Christian. And everybody goes, oh, I love you. I want to give you all the business now. You're a man of integrity. You do things right. No. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a way that meets persecution, that meets difficulty. John 15, 19 to 20, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as it does its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Acts 9-2, we meet Saul. What is he doing? What is Saul doing? Saul, Saul, the zealous Jew, is saying, all these Christians, (laughs) they got it wrong. They'll get it right later. No. Saul, the zealot, you know what he's doing? He's trying to eliminate all who belong to the way. He's trying to kill them. He is hunting them down. He is trying to eliminate them. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not easy. It's hard. It's the way of repentance and faith, the way of sacrifice and self-denial. It's the way of putting your own sinful desires to death. It's the way of living for God's greater glory above and beyond your own. It's the way of Christ. And it's hard. But you know what you need to know? It's hard, but it is not heavy because Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. It's hard, but it's not lonely because Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 20, what? That, lo, I am with you until the end of the day. It's hard, but it's not in vain because in John 10, 9, Jesus promised that all who enter in by him, what? Have eternal life. It's hard, but it is not worthless because in John 3, 16, we learn that we have been promised eternal life by belief in Christ. It's hard, but it's not hopeless because Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13, that his is the way that leads to life. It's hard. Yes, it's hard, but it's not heavy. It's not lonely. It's not vain. It's not worthless. It's not hopeless. It is about Christ, and it is absolutely worth it. It's worth it. Now, all through, all through this study of the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about that this is Jesus teaching his disciples. You remember this? Right? That Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is what it looks like to follow him. So if he's teaching those who are following him, I just ask a question this week in preparation. Why would Jesus say this? Why, why would he look at those who have gathered to follow him and say, hey, you enter by the narrow gate. Haven't they already entered? Well, Jesus surely knew. He surely knew. They gathered and seated before him. Were genuine followers, genuine believers. But there were also those who were there just because, well, that's what the majority was doing in that moment. And there were those who, 
like in the book of John when he feeds the 5,000 were there just to get what they could get from him. They were there who, those there who had the wrong motives. It's just like when we gather every Sunday morning. We gather to worship, we gather to exalt our king as believers. But when we do so, we know that there are some sitting in our midst right now. There are some of you here today, and you're not believers. Maybe, maybe you come just because it's what everybody does. You come just because it's what your family does. You come just because you think it's the right thing to do. Maybe you come because your parents make you come. Maybe you come because you're trying to earn something or trying to figure out. Maybe you come just because you have questions and you're wondering, what is this whole Christianity thing about? Is it true? Can I trust it? I'm just kind of skeptical. I don't know. I'm not trying to attack Christianity, but I don't know. And so Jesus looks out upon this group and he says, enter through the narrow gate. Just like the appeal this morning from his word to be enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. So, some of you have read the Pilgrim's Progress. The, the Pilgrim's Progress, you, you might remember the, the, the day when, when Christian, is at the very beginning of the book, and Christian is made, where, made aware of the fact that, that he will die and he will face judgment. And Bunyan writes that Christian realized that neither of these was he ready for. Neither of them. He wasn't ready to die. He wasn't ready to face judgment. But along comes evangelist. And evangelist tells him to enter through the wicked gate. The wicked gate is a small gate. It's a, a narrow gate. It's the narrow way. And evangelist says, enter through that. You see, Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress came to understand and grasp the truth of Hebrews 9.27 where it says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Christian understood that. That there would indeed be a day that he died and there would be a day that he faced judgment. And the truth applies to everyone sitting here. All of us will die and all of us will face judgment. I want you to hear a portion of the Pilgrim's Progress this morning. Then Evangelist said, If this be your condition, why do you stand still? Christian answered, Because I know not where to go. Then Evangelist gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. Christian therefore read it. Looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, Where must I fly? Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicked gate? Christian said, No. Then said Evangelist, Do you see yonder shining light? Christian said, I think so, I do. Then said Evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly toward it, and you will see the gate, at which when you knock it shall be told what you should do. So Christian began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children perceiving it began to cry after him to return. The man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain.
Some of you today need to hear this very warning. Death and judgment is to come. It is no scare tactic. It's called reality. It doesn't matter how advanced you are. It doesn't matter how much you know, how much money you have, how much stuff you accumulate, how skilled you are, what level of athletics you ascend to. We were reminded this weekend in the news. It is appointed to man to die once and then to face judgment. And just as evangelists declared the good news that there is a wicked gate and appealed to Christian to flee, flee from it. Flee from the destruction that is sure to come and flee and enter into the wicked gate, enter into the narrow gate. The good news today is the same. That Jesus looks and he says, enter through the narrow gate and he is the narrow gate. He is the light that you run to. You run to Christ. That is the good news. That is the good news that if you flee to Christ in faith that you will be saved. The simple gospel message is that if you turn from your sins, if you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All. If you call on the name of the Lord, He will save you. He will save you. But you are not saved through cultural conformity. You are not saved through social justice movements. You are not saved through religiosity. You are not saved through being spiritual. You are not saved by the things you accumulate and the things you achieve. You are saved by Christ and Christ alone. And I would appeal to you today, if you're here, no matter what the reason, if you're here and you have never turned from your sin, I would appeal to you to turn to Christ in faith today. Flee, flee. And declare and run life, life, eternal life. Many are walking the path of destruction. Few are pursuing and walking through the narrow gate that is Christ. But the wide gate leads to destruction. And the narrow gate leads to eternal life. You need to know this morning, unbeliever, it is in Christ alone that your hope is found. In Christ alone. We're going to close this morning. We're going to sing that. We're going to declare that. Those of us here that are believers, we're going to worship and we're going to praise our great and mighty God because it is in Christ alone that hope is found, life is found, forgiveness is found, peace with God is found, the peace of God is found, and restoration is found. It is in Christ alone that reconciliation is found. It is in Christ alone that we have eternal life. And so we're going to stand and we're going to worship as the worship team comes up to close us out. We're going to stand. We're going to worship. We're going to exalt him. We're going to declare that great truth that is in Christ alone. And if you're here, you're an unbeliever. I want you to hear that today. It is in Christ alone. He alone is the narrow gate. If you'd like to talk to me or another pastor about what it looks like to follow Christ, how do I follow Christ? How do I become a Christian? Or you just want us to talk through that and pray through that. I would love for you to come talk to me down front or out in the foyer afterwards. Or if you've got my cell phone, text me this afternoon or call me or come by this afternoon. The invitation is not limited to three minutes and 38 seconds of a song. The invitation of the Lord, the work of the Lord is all times. It is at all hours. I would appeal to you to, to, to decide now, to trust in Christ now. You can come and talk to us at any time. We would love to talk to you. 
Let's pray and then let's stand and let's worship our great God. Lord, we come to you and we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the fact that, God, you have provided the way, the way to eternal life. And it is through Christ alone who is the narrow gate. And so, God, I I rejoice in so many of my brothers and sisters here who have entered in through the narrow gate. They have trusted you, and we stand, and we worship to exalt and to lift high the great name of Jesus Christ because we know it is in you and you alone, Lord, that we find life. It's in you and you alone that we have hope, and we rejoice in that today. God, I pray for my friends here, God, who have never trusted you. They're, they're captivated by the ways of the world. They're, they're walking in conformity to the culture. They're just kind of going along with the tide of, of culture or religiosity or causes, whatever it may be. God, would you open their eyes to see that it is appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment? And that, God, if you're not trusting in Christ, that you are prepared for neither of those, would you please stir in their hearts and open their eyes to that great truth today? And, God, would you do a great work of salvation in them? God, we pray, would you please do that today? Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We worship you today. We pray all this in your name. Amen.